there, but before we do, we're going to pray. But I'm going to let you turn there first. Yeah, kids are dismissed um, to go to children's church, children's ministry, whatever it's called. When you got it, say, I got it. We're going to First Kings. Say it like you mean it. Got it. Natalie. <laughs> you got it? You got it. Okay. All right. This, this is what makes this fun. And when there's a smaller group, now I can pick on people and we can talk, we can interact, all that good stuff. Just don't interrupt me. All right. Um, for First Kings, let's go ahead and pray because there's something that's been on my heart, a couple of cool things, maybe some stories from uh, me traveling. I went to Oakland and San Francisco this last week. And um, so maybe I can share some stories, some insightful things with you. But let's go ahead and pray first. Father God, we love you. We thank you for how good you are. God, we thank you that uh, you are holy and that we can come here and meet with you. Father God, that we can worship you through song. God, that we're not just singing praises for you, but we have the opportunity to sing to you. And so, God, we um, just ask that you would meet us here. God, that you would teach and it wouldn't be me. Um, God, that it would be your words that jump off the pages of your good book and change the hearts of your people, including me today. So Holy Spirit, be with us and be working in us on this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So the title of my message is Ready for Trouble. And... um, which, ironically, Karen, again, she helped me out with that by saying, what's up, trouble? Um, because apparently I'm trouble. So, I think, I, I, I think that God has a new insight, a new truth for us, if you haven't already figured this one out, about trouble. Because when we, when we think of trouble, the very first thing that we think about it is that it carries a bad connotation. So, for example, if we say, um, hey, I pray for my friends, their marriage is in trouble. We think, okay, things are going pretty bad here. Hey, I got caught um, doing X, Y, and Z by my parents, and now I'm in trouble. I'm grounded. Um, just this last week, one of the kids got caught smoking, and um, he got in trouble. And I'm going to share that story again and the details of that, and I'm going to say his name and everything. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> Pedram. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, and um, so when we think of trouble, we think that, okay, this is bad, and I don't really like it, and if there's trouble comes, I'm going to run from it. I'm going to try and stay out of trouble. And in fact, when trouble comes, I'm not going to be happy through it because it just weighs on me. It's not a thing that I really look forward to. We're going to see some of the same responses in the Scripture today, but we're also going to see some... A, a word of exhortation and a call from God about how we should actually respond to trouble, what we should know about trouble. And so go ahead and turn, if you're already, if you found the first, uh, book, first Kings, um, go ahead and turn to chapter 18, if I haven't already told you to go there. Chapter 18, there's a couple verses and there's some things that I want to give you um, that put everything in context. 
Okay, so this is important before we start rolling away with all the things we can learn from this. We have to understand a story. This is a familiar story to those who are in their Bible quite a bit, who've uh, grown up maybe in the church. Um, But this is going to be a new story to some, and so I encourage you to follow along with me. I'm going to read some of it, and I'm going to paraphrase and summarize a lot of it. And then we're going to focus on a few points of particular scripture that are going to jump off the page for you as they did for me. And so with that said, 18 verses 1 and 2 says this. And it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab and there was a severe famine in Samaria. Now jump over real quick to verse 17. It says, Then it happened that Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel, the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So here's what's going on. Here's this guy, Elijah. He is a prophet of God. He is used by God. He gets a word from the Lord that says, I need you to go meet up with King Ahab because I'm going to send rain on the earth again. So I need you to meet up with this guy. Up until that point, Elijah was key in instituting a famine in the land. There was a drought. There was no water. God had used that because of what Ahab was all about, and that was evil. And so that's why uh, Elijah's response to Ahab when Ahab said, Is that you, trouble? I'm not the person who got you in trouble. You got yourself in trouble because of your sin and wickedness. Ahab was the most wicked king from all the kings before him. He married Jezebel, who was a worshiper of foreign gods and goddesses. And then he compromised his faith and started following those gods too. And because of that, a drought was sent on the earth in his particular land for the purpose of waking him up. So here we are, and here's the next 20 verses or or what I'm going to summarize for you. You can read this on your own. You can mark it down on your outline and read it at home, whatever you want. But the next 20 verses I've, I've summarized with a title, The Battle of the Gods, if you will. So what really happens here is you have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, of Jacob, the one true God versus the God or the goddesses and gods, these foreign ones, the gods of Baal. And so what, um, what Elijah does is he walks in and he says, listen, you guys falter between two opinions. I'm done with it. You guys have to pick and choose who you're going to serve today. Will it be God or will it be these foreign gods? Because up until this point, you've chosen to do both. And that's not all that different from where we are at today. We have a whole bunch of people out there who like a little bit of every religion. They like to do a little bit of 
everything that comes from everyone. Well, I like a little bit of Buddha here and there. I love that whole thing about meditation and this and that. And, and I just, I love that whole thing there. But I also love Jesus. And I know that I have to find my peace in him. But you got to find yourself, your peace in yourself too. And, and well, and then the, the Mormons, they're such nice people. They're, they're just, they're willing to do anything. I really like their religion. And Catholics, I like that you get a chance to kind of confess a little bit in the box with the, with the preacher. It's a little weird, but I like it, you know, whatever. And so we start picking and choosing all these things. And it reminded me kind of of San Francisco because, see, I went there. Sadly, I listened to Becky who told me to go to places like uh, Chinatown. I went to Chinatown, and I thought this was going to be a fun experience. And there was thousands of people just on the streets. I couldn't move my car. It took me 40 minutes just to get through that part of the city. I was like, man, this is crazy. There was ducks hanging and just all kinds of stuff in the street. It was dirty. There was homeless people everywhere. I was like, gosh, this, this is unique. You know, this is unique. Um, I went to a coffee shop and it was like six in the morning. I don't know why I couldn't sleep on vacation, but I was at this coffee shop and when I walked in, um, they were playing rap at six in the morning. So, and I was like, well, this is interesting. I got my coffee and everything and they had these weird coffees, some that I had to stay away from because, well, we put this herb in these coffees and we do this and I was like, I don't know. I don't even want to taste no herbs. I don't want to get high when I drink my coffee. I want to wake up. Okay. Um, next thing you know, Bob Marley was on and then, I mean, it just, there was, it was eclectic to say the least. And, um, the truth is that's how us America, how people can be. We like to take a little bit of everything sometimes. And that's what God had enough of with these people. And Elijah had primarily focused on you guys falter between these gods. It's time to serve one. So pick. And they wouldn't. In fact, it was quiet. They were happy with where they were. And so God said, or Elijah had said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. We're going to go up here. We're going to get two bulls. You guys get one. I get one. You 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah for your gods and goddesses. Here's a bull. I want you to put it on an altar, make a sacrifice to your gods. And I want you to call on your gods to take this sacrifice with fire. And I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to prepare my sacrifice and I'm going to ask my God, the true God, to do the exact same thing. Take this sacrifice with fire. Whoever's God takes this sacrifice with fire, let that be the God that we serve. And so everybody said, okay, that's a deal. I'll pick if we see whose God shows up. And so the battle of the gods began. These prophets of Baal... Um, and Asherah, 400 and 450, 850 total prophets. Um, from morning until night, they prayed to their gods. Here's a sacrifice. Come and take it. Bring fire down. Take it. They danced, it said. They leaped around dancing in their rituals and all this stuff. And nothing happened still. They cried. They cried out to their God to the point where there was some mourning going on. God, come. Please, crying out to these foreign gods, even to the point where Elijah mocked them saying, yeah, you better cry a lot louder because <laughs> I think your God's sleep. And then it got to the point where they even cut themselves. 
Blood was gushing out of them. It was a form of great distress. Come, God, come. And nothing happened. The Bible says it in a way it says no one cared. And then Elijah, he prepares the altar. He takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of of Judah and he he digs trenches around the sacrifice and he puts the wood on there, the bull on there. And then he actually takes four big buckets of water and just douses the whole sacrifice. Four buckets, three different times. Nothing but water. The trenches were full. Everything was full. And this thing is drenching with water. And then we pick up what happens in verse 36 through 39. And you can turn there. Because we're going to read that. It says, And it came to pass at the time of offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that I have done all the things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that the people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell down, consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people had saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And then the beginning of verse 19, and then we're going to focus on a particular verse. A couple of verses. Beginning of verse 19, Ahab, he goes, he goes back. I mean, actually at the end of verse 18, what happens is people, they fall down, they worship. The Lord, he is God. And as a result, Elijah executes all these prophets. Okay, cleaning house. And then Ahab, he goes all the way back to his wife, Jezebel, the evil witch, if you will, who... Um, got him to believe in these foreign gods. And he tells her what happened. Dude, Elijah, he killed everybody. I mean, the fire came down. His God showed up. Our God didn't. It was insane. And Jezebel responds with, as it is on this day, so be it the same as it was for them, as it will be for me, if I do not kill Elijah. She threatens him. And if this is the first time hearing this story, your, your response was probably, is going to probably be the same as mine was when I first read this story. I thought, she's crazy. This guy brought a drought to a land, called down fire from heaven. He was used by God, and she's threatening him. Get out of here. But she threatens him, and I'm thinking, okay, what's his next move? And if you read through the beginning of, of chapter 19, um, Elijah, he actually runs for his life. He runs in fear. He's scared. He runs, from, runs for his life and he ends up depressed about how things have went. Depression, depression sinks in. Hopelessness sinks in. Self-confidence is depleted. He felt alone. He felt like his ministry was purposeless, pointless, like it wasn't going according to his plan. And so as a result, he actually just wants to die. Check out 19, verse 4. It says, But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat <clears throat> sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. 
He's sitting under this tree and he pretty much sleeps the day away. God sends an angel to keep him alive, give him food, wake him up. And then God sends him on a 40-day mission trip to Horeb, the mountain of God. That's what happens. And then we pick up the story in verse 9 and 10, and this is where 9 through 13 is where we're going to get all of our points today. So you guys have just heard a Pastor Mike introduction. All right. You've got a history lesson. You've got some context. Now check out verse 9. It says this, And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in the place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So God speaks with Elijah and says, what are you doing here? Here's his response. I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. So God had effectively asked, Elijah, what's wrong? And his response is, I did the best I could. I passionately served you, God. I did exactly what you said. The children of God, they have forsaken you. They've turned to this. My ministry is pointless. Everything I did, pointless. I don't see why I'm doing this. I'm actually running for my life because people are trying to kill me. I'm in trouble. And then here is my favorite part of this story. In 11, it says, Then he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before God. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks into pieces before God. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. What's wrong? Well, it's not going according to my plan. This is what's happening. And I'm fearing my life is going to be taken. I don't know what's going on. And I don't know what to do. I don't know what to expect. And everything's wrong. Nothing is working. Your children are turning away from you. It's pointless. And then God shows up in some miraculous ways, but he hears him in one way. God comes through a rushing wind and rips into the mountain nothing. Earthquake shaking and trembling nothing. Fire breathing up and consuming things nothing. Elijah's response nothing. We move on. And we get a response out of Elijah when we come to a still, small voice. He heard the voice of God in the quietness. And his response was he took his mantle, a part of his clothing, and he just covered up his face and went into the entrance of the cave. He didn't even want to look at God. He was so afraid. He had had known that God had showed up and he didn't know what to do. He was so fearful of this mighty God. And as a side note, I think we're missing people 
who don't have a fear for God. Not a healthy respect, a fear. All these movies come out these days with uh, these possession movies and demonic movies and things that are to get you to be scared and all that stuff. And it works. Kids, people, I can't sleep. I can't go to uh, mom. Can I stay up late? Can we can we watch cartoons or you know whatever the case is? They're fearful. I don't know if you know this, but God threw Satan and his demons out of heaven. He overthrew the devil. And yet we have more fear for Satan than we do the God of the entire universe. People walk around with no regard for who God is, for what he wants for their lives. They openly sin. They take advantage of God's mercy, his grace. It's no big deal. He's going to forgive me. And the reason why is because they just don't fear God. They can't take their clothes in their face and just and hide and cower from God because they think that God is this lovey-dovey genie in a bottle who forgives everything. God is holy. He is big. And there was a lesson to be learned by for Elijah. And it was the fear of God, but even more importantly, it was simply seeing God. Elijah had been an expert at showing people God. I declare a drought in the land. Fire down from heaven so that people could repent so that people could see God. And in getting people to see God, he had stopped seeing God himself. And so God had to show up. God had to show up in a way that was surreal to Elijah, that would get his attention. He came to him in a still, small voice. That's why I love this verse. In Psalm 46, it says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Right now, there's a million things probably running through your head and you're thinking, well, what about this and what about that? Be still and know that I'm God. Trouble surrounded you. You're not sure what to do. Money is tight. Whatever the case may be, you feel like you're in trouble and your response is the same of that of Elijah. I don't know what to do and where are you and why isn't it going the way I want it to? Be still. Know that I'm God. I'm in control. Elijah thought no good can come from everything that was happening around him. And God was saying, shh, that famine that we did, the fire that we brought down, the execution of those prophets, that trouble that we went through, that we experienced, that you experienced, It saved people. 
There was good that came from it. What's wrong, Elijah? And he complains two times the same story. God teaches them a lesson. And here's God's response. Check this out. And this is funny. Look at verse 19, 14. What's wrong, Elijah? Well, I've been very zealous. He does the same pitch. I'm not going to repeat it. Same pitch. I've been very zealous for you. I've done it all. People have forsaken you. They're coming after my life. Same pitch. Here's God's answer. And this is, fu- this is funny. Th- this is no answer at all. This is what God says. Then the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazel king over Syria. Also you shall anoint Jehu the son of Nimshi as king over Israel and Elisha the shock. And it just goes on. Oh, you're scared? You didn't like the way things get- went? Sorry. Hey, let's move on. Here's some things I want you to do, okay? And then go ahead and skip down to verse 18. After he tells him what he wants him to do, he says, Oh, by the way, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel who have not bowed to bow. Every mouth has not kissed him. You thought this had no point. You thought your ministry was worthless. You forgot who was running the show. I was working behind the scenes. We have 7,000 people reserved in Israel for me because of what we did. More importantly, because what I did. I don't know about you, but souls reserved for God is a good thing. Trouble encourages people to turn to God. That's why trouble can foster good. And that's your first point. Trouble can foster good. Trouble isn't bad if good can come from it. And it takes a little different way of thinking about things. But if you actually turn to chapter 18 and just reread what's going on and, or remember what I had already told you in verse 17, Ahab starts off with saying, is that you, troubler of Israel? Remember, and Elijah's response, well, I've not troubled you, you troubled yourself. Your sin, your wickedness got you in this mess. You reap what you sow. Your evil has gotten you nowhere. So maybe trouble is here to wake you up. As a matter of fact, he goes on and says, bring all your people to Mount Horeb because I'm about to have a light show. Okay, we're about to call fire down from heaven and it's, it's about to get real. People were killed, all that stuff. Was it good? Yes. Because people got a chance to be reserved for the kingdom of God. You've heard the expression, sometimes things get worse before they get better. And that's true. Sometimes trouble comes to foster or to encourage good. For example, that kid that I was talking about. Um, So he got caught smoking. And as a result... It wasn't the first time, mind you. This time he got suspended. He got caught. Parents grounded him, took everything, all that stuff. And, and so he's coming to church. Um, I'm talking with him. And he says, I'm actually glad I got caught because um, it was getting out of hand. My friends, I mean, they were smoking in the bathroom at school. They were smoking um, after school on the way home. We stopped at parks to smoke. 
And they were doing all kinds of stuff. They started stealing just so that they can try and find a way to, to pay for what we smoked. I was going nowhere. My grades dropped. Dude, I want to go to college. He got in trouble, but it encouraged him to do good. And when we can remember that, then we, we can remember that trouble isn't so bad after all. I can actually be ready for trouble. Because I know that good results can come from trouble. My favorite story is Joseph. One of my favorite stories is of Joseph in the Old Testament. Genesis 45 through 50 is kind of like the climax of all kinds of things happening. Joseph sold into slavery by his own brothers. And then you get to Genesis 45, 5, and what happens is he reveals himself to his, his brothers and he says, don't be mad. Don't be angry with yourselves. Don't be sad. I've been sent by God to preserve your life. What you had intended for evil, God had intended for good. That changes the whole way we think about trouble. Wow, I mean, maybe things are not so bad after all. Maybe I'm experiencing this to learn. Which brings me to my next point and verse. In James 1, 2-4, it says, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials or troubles or tribulations. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let your faith begin its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The testing of your faith produces. Your next point is, trouble can foster not just good, but change. And hopefully, a good change. Count it joy when you encounter various trials, troubles, tribulations. Because when you do, the testing of your faith will produce something. Now, I don't know about you, but if you have nothing and then something's produced, that's good. There was a change that happened. If you had just a little bit of something and now you've produced more of something... That's change. Could be good, could be bad. It all depends. Nothing to something equals change. And so I don't want you to sit there and think, well, man, are you saying that all bad things that happen, I mean, all the trouble that we experience, all that is for the purpose of change? Actually, I'm saying bad, good, everything that happens is for the purpose of change. Everything. You don't have to like it. You don't have to put your hope in it. You don't have to embrace it. You don't have to be super excited when trouble hits you. But I'm telling you, it's one of life's formulas. Trouble can foster change. And what kind of change it encourages you to make depends on your attitude towards the trouble. Will it be that James 1, 2 through 4, okay, I'm going to count it joy when trouble hits? Or will it be when trouble hits, I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be angry. And I'm going to be a crybaby. I'm going to be like Elijah. Trouble can foster good. Trouble can foster change. Which simply means it can encourage change. It can, it can encourage good. 
where we're going to spend a lot of our time at is, is also on the third point, which is trouble can foster focus or encourage focus. Just like that boy who um, got caught, him being in trouble changed his total focus. Now, I want to get into college. I actually want to do something right now. I want to get, something, I want to get my, my head together. I want to do some things. Just imagine if we were the type of people, we all have to learn and we're all going to experience trouble. That's inevitable. But just imagine if we were the type of people who actually decided to learn and grow as we walked forward rather than always looking at things hindsight. Oh, you know what? It was actually good that I went through that because I learned, well, I remember when you was going through that and you hated your life. You was over there depressed, a crying mess. You were just like Elijah under a tree waiting for the days to go by, sleeping them away. Let's change our attitude when trouble hits and know, okay, this is not something that I particularly like, but I can be still and know that he is God. He is in control. It gets me to change my focus. 1 Kings 19 11 through 13. There was a huge focus on who God is. And that's your first point within the point, or sub point is it gets you to focus. It gets you to focus on God. I love the, uh, the portion of scripture that Paul talks about where he says, look, I've, I've had a thorn in my side and it's basically prohibited me from doing my ministry well. I'm constantly thinking about this thing. Whatever that thorn was, it was something that bothered him. And he prayed for God to remove it three times, and God answered, no. My strength is enough. Focus on me. I think that's important for us because Elijah, that's what he was taught, and that's what we see through this story. Hey, I know that you think nothing's working, but I reserve 7,000. I know that you don't like particularly how things are going, but I'm in control. Everything's good. Matter of fact, focus on me. The focus, he, he, he cried out to God, this is what's going on, and God sent him on a mission. Okay, now that you're done crying, I need you to go anoint some people, do some work, and remember that I am at work, but it's all behind the scenes. It's not about you. It's about me. It's about God. And I would like to say that the reason why we have a total lack of focus of God, if that's you, I know it has been me, is because we haven't really worked on the things like, or the primary thing, which is be still. I mean, we're stuck in the Elijah zone. I don't know about you, if, I'm, if God calls me out to a mountain and he comes in a rushing wind and it rips into the mountain and then a huge earthquake happens and then there's a fire that sets ablaze, I'm scared for my life. Okay, I'm going, oh man, this, I mean, God just called me out here. Now this place is going crazy. I know it's him. But if we're, maybe we're like Elijah in the sense where we're used to the glitz and glamour. We actually expect it. The Pharisees, they wanted it too. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. I want to see something cool. I want to see something good here. And I think that we say things like, 
if God would show up and do this, then I would believe. Number one, you'd be scared out of your mind if God showed up and did something crazy like that. Okay? I used to pray all the time um, that I could hear an audible voice from God. God, can you show up and speak to me in a way? Then I would believe even more. And then, um, and never, number one, it never happened. Number two, um, as, I, as I kept praying this prayer day in and day out and week in, and, and every time I wanted to see God or experience God, I'd pray that prayer, God, just speak to me. I just want you to say something, anything, man. And um, I remember one time I was asking for that. I was praying, eyes closed, and I think I was laying in my bed and I was praying, my eyes closed. God, just speak to me. I literally was scared out of my mind. I don't know if I was going crazy. I think I was just a fearful of God. I was like, what if he actually speaks? What if he shows up? What am I going to do? Like, I'm in my house alone and a voice, I'm here, you know, or son, whatever it is, you know. I'm going to be like, what the heck? You know, I'm looking, I'm opening my eyes. I would be scared out of my mind. And that's consistent with the Bible. But the truth is, we should still focus on God. And that might mean decluttering our life with all the stuff so that we can focus on the still, small voice. I was telling a friend yesterday that I come, um, when I'm getting ready to speak on a Sunday up here in front of the church, I'll come in and just be in the sanctuary alone just to meet with God. And I came last night, all the lights were off, and I stood right here, and I just kind of closed my eyes, and I was praying. And it was in that still, small moment of quietness that I I felt, I, I even said it out loud, I said, God, you are here. And those are the moments where we can really embrace who God is. I'm not saying God never shows up in miraculous big ways, but I am saying that when we start focusing on that, when we clutter up our life with all the glitz and glamour and the stuff, we're going to miss out how God really moves because we're focused on the stuff and not focused on him. Trouble fosters and encourages focus. Focus on God. Secondly, or B, it also focuses Um, Trouble can focus us on God's will. And that's why I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story of Jesus who he's, he's about to go to the cross and he says, Father, if at all possible, let this cup or this wrath pass from me. I don't want to have to go to the cross and feel a separation towards you. I don't want to have to take on the sins of the world. But nevertheless, not my will, your will be done. Elijah complaining, it's not going according to my plan. It's not going according to my plan. It's not doing what I would want it to do. And people are not responding to the signs anymore. And it's not working. And I can't get them to think right. And they're all turning away from you, God. Yeah, the reason why is because it's been about you. It's going according to my plan. 
And I think when we experience focus, it helps us, or experience trouble, it helps us focus on God's will. Every time, I mean, when 9-11 hit, when these huge events, when uh, these cataclysmic events of tsunamis and all this stuff hits, people are running to the church. They're looking for answers. They're wondering what's going to happen. They're wondering why. They're wondering what they can do. They're thinking about death. They're thinking about after, after death, what comes next. How should I be living? I mean, there's a self-evaluation that takes place because people want to understand what the will of God is. Sometimes it takes a little shaking up to get there. Trouble can encourage focus, focus on God, focus on God's will. And lastly, <clears throat> most importantly, <clears throat> focus on someone else rather than myself or focus on others rather than myself. If you haven't read the story of Jonah, go read that. It's a real small book, and that's a cool book that illustrates this point to the T. Um, here's a guy called by God to preach to people, to cause a change of heart and repentance in the people, to turn them back to the God of the universe. And here's a guy who was called by God, hey, I want you to go to this place and preach to these people who need to hear about God. And he said, no, I don't want to go there. And in fact, he had such a disdain for these people that he went the opposite direction. He got on a boat and went the opposite direction. And that's the story of Jonah and the well, Jonah and the big fish, swallowed up to teach him a lesson. It's not about what you want. It's about, it's about what I want. You need to be a part of my will. I need you to focus on others, not yourself. We want to, I want to save people. And that's what we see about the heart of God is that it is His desire that none should perish, but all should have everlasting life. And my heart was broken when I was in San Fran. I had, I mean, there was such a darkness. People asked, did you have fun? Well, number one, I mean, I went alone. Friend bailed out on me at the last minute. But number two, even in the fun and the experiences and driving around and seeing things, I just felt like a darkness. Man, I was just sad that people had such a disdain or such a disregard for God. I know the joy of the Lord. I know that you have all experienced the joy of the Lord, what He does, and that's, that's why you're here, to, to see who God is and the difference that He makes and how awesome He is and His, His heart for you. And I was so just bummed out that these people didn't care. It was no big deal. They were living their lives the way they wanted to. They were comfortable focusing on themselves. Sometimes God has to shake comfortable people up to make them realize what's more important. And it maybe it starts with realizing that you're not the one whose priority God is. When it switched focuses from people to Elijah himself, you see the complaints, you see the poor me attitude. It was all about Elijah. God wanted him to be still 
and know that he is God. Not Elijah is a God. Not Elijah is a miracle worker. And I think that's the message for us. Trouble's going to come. How will you respond? Will you count it all joy when you face these various trials, these troubles, these tribulations, understanding that it's going to produce something? Will you go against trouble knowing that you are on journey with God and he's going to grow in you something awesome? Let's pray. God, trouble carries a bad connotation. God, there's so many things that are um, challenging about trouble, about being distressed, about a circumstance that doesn't fit our, our personal bent or desire or our likes. But God, we know that you have designed trouble for a good reason. God, when we do foolish things and get in trouble, then like Ahab, it's a result of our own sin our own stupidity. But as good as you are, God, even in our foolishness, you can turn something good for us if we just turn back to you. So God, we pray that you would give us new eyes and a new heart as we look at trouble. God, that when trouble comes, we can respond the right way, that we can focus on the things that matter most. God, that we can be changed, that we can be good, that we can be focused on you, your will, your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.